Junior Church, ages three through fifth grade. Glad to be with you this Independence Weekend. Thank you for all the servicemen and women who have served our country in that way. And we are in the book of Titus. We're continuing our study in Titus, and it's a joy to be able to uh, share God's Word. Uh, this morning, as we're in the book of Titus, we're actually coming to our memory verse. We've been working on this uh, for several months together. And so Titus chapter 2, uh, I, begin if, I believe if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 999. Uh, I kind of gotten that in my head, uh, as uh, I think it's all on two pages there. We encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word, leave it open. It'll help you follow along as we go. Uh, making sure that all that we do and say here is found in God's Word and is faithful to that. Uh, as Pat said, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, you feel free to take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, but we're in Titus 2. We're looking at verses 11 through 15. And by way of introduction, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, this theme of waiting for the Lord's return. Waiting. And uh, if you saw all the hymns, what is great about so many of our hymns that we sing uh, is that they, they kind of begin in the past with what Christ has done. They move to the present uh, about who he is and how we should live our life. But most of the hymns end with this hope of Christ returning. And as we look at our praise songs and our worship songs uh, in this generation, we want to continue to make sure it's not just about us and now. You know, uh, now uh, I need you now, but it's also about looking forward to Christ returning. And, and how do we wait? It's tough as Americans to wait, isn't it? Do we really even have a concept of what, of it, what does it mean to wait? Perhaps the only concept that we have uh, is being in a waiting room. Who in here has spent some time in a waiting room? All right, everybody. Fortunately for me, most of my time in a waiting room uh, was when my wife was about ready to deliver. That, that those are the majority of the times that, that we've spent in a waiting room. Uh, but if you will just imagine with me three different kinds of people uh, that are in a waiting room. Let, let's say that I met them, okay? And uh, the first guy, let, let's say, can we pick a name here? Anybody want to throw out a name? What's this first guy? What should we call him? George, I heard George nice and loud. So George, he's in the waiting room, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, but no one ever comes for him. No baby arrives. In fact, no wife is there, because he doesn't even have a wife. He sits waiting and waiting, but there really is no reason that he should even be there. He's waiting for nothing. He's living in the present. In anticipation of events in the future, he's excited about, but yet they have no connection to real events in the past. So he will be disappointed. Our second person, what should we call him? Norbert? Norbert. Well, of course. Norbert. It sounds like um, a good name for this guy. Norbert was hard at work completely oblivious to the arrival of his new baby. I mean, he wasn't even in the hospital building. When the doctor searched for him, they couldn't find him anywhere, and they could only reach him by phone, and he was busy in the office doing work, not expecting the arrival of his new child. He's living in the present, completely oblivious of the events that are going to come in the future, 
even though they were related to actions that he did in the past. He will be surprised. Our last guy in the waiting room. What shall we call him? He's the hero of the story. Ray. Yeah, Ray's the hero. Uh, Ray had a birthday this week, so it's fitting. Uh, Ray, the hero, he's in the waiting room all through the night. He came with his wife, dutifully served her as best as he could. Key phrase, as best as he could. There's not a whole lot in there. I remember, not that this is any help to the story at all, but I remember my wife was in labor. We were in Fairfax, uh, Virginia, and uh, I was hungry. And so I, uh, I brought in uh, some donuts, some chocolate donuts. And I remember that I had eaten a couple of them. And then all of a sudden, you know, the contractions are getting closer. And, and, all that kind of, and she goes, you need to get a piece of gum. I do not want to smell that chocolate on your breath. And uh, so, you know, you think you're doing the right thing. But he is like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, you're running around. Where's the gum? But here he is doing as best as he could. And he waited and he waited and he waited And he is living in the present because he has hope in the future based upon his actions in the past. And he will be delighted when his baby arrives. (laughs) I think these men in this story kind of paint how most of us approach the Christian life. Some of us are so engaged in this hopeful anticipation of the future, but yet it is fantasy. It is not based upon any reality in the past. It is just fictional. And one day, when the judgment comes, we will be disappointed because we didn't enter into the kingdom, because we didn't anchor it into the events of the past. Others of us, are so absorbed in the present or so absorbed in the past that we forget about the future and our hope vanishes and we do not live waiting or hoping. We want to be like the third guy this morning. We want to be Christians that live appropriately in this world. We want to understand how the past and the hope of the future impacts our present because we live so much of our time waiting. How does the past and the hope of the future impact our present? I remember going to college and the joke was that Liberty University, the LU, uh, stood for line up and all the college campus was was a big long series of lines and so you'd hurry up and you'd wait. I've heard that sometimes about other places where all you got to do is you hurry up and you get there and you wait. Some of you this morning, your dads will hurry you up to get out of church, to go sit in a hot car, only to wait for mom to get done talking to her friends. (laughs) There's there's some here, I've seen that. Others of us wait at work for that report to come in, for a job to get done. At home we wait, we wait for our children We wait for our children's problems to be resolved or personal conflicts to be resolved. So much of our life is lived in a waiting room. And sometimes these waiting rooms are so still, it seems like cobwebs grow in the corner. We don't like to wait. Have you ever heard the prayer? God, I want patience and I want it now. (laughs) 
That's kind of our definition of waiting, right? Well, waiting is a crucial part to what it means to be a Christian. So let's see what Paul says to the Christians in Crete in verse 11 through 15. You're going to get the idea of waiting based upon the word appearing, which happens twice. So follow along with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it gives us hope in the future. But our hope is anchored in events, actual events in the past where the grace of God has appeared. Lord, we thank you for revealing your grace in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, right now, we know that you are enthroned in heaven. There are angels and elders falling down and worshiping you. But Lord, that glory is still veiled. We look forward to the appearing or the revealing of your glory that you rightfully have when at that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. We want to renew our commitment in that. We want to say that right now you're the Lord of our life and whatever you challenge us from your word, we are committed to obey. We ask that our teaching and our preaching and what we hear this morning would not be men's wisdom, but would be clearly taught from your word so our confidence would not be in men or traditions or, the, or how we've always done things, but our confidence would be in the authoritative word of God. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So our outline's pretty simple this morning. We want to live with some balance between uh, what was then, what's now, and what is to come. So the past, the present, and the future, that's kind of our outline this morning, and uh, we're going to begin in the present, okay? The present, as you remember from chapter 2, Titus has been uh, encouraged to instruct older men, older women, uh, younger men, younger women, all on how they are to live their life in this present age. All of them, every single category of people, are called to godliness, not just pastors, not just older men, but younger men too, not just older women, but younger women, and even servants are all called to live holy and righteous in their behavior. And we saw in Titus 2, the first 10 verses, that there were all of these so that's. Paul gave us reasons, and the main one was we're to live this way so that we can adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every aspect. That, that we can prove that God's saving power is real. And the way that we show the world that God's saving power is real is by how we live our lives. We put God's saving power on display wherever you work, wherever you live, wherever you go to school, wherever you shop. In any circumstance, any relationships that you have, whether it's with the family or extended family or with friends, we are to be demonstrating that God's saving power is real, that it is alive, that it's active. We are to put that on display, Paul tells us here, in this present age. Look with me at verse 12. It says, in this present age, you are to train us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives when? In the present age. You see, when God saves us, he doesn't just take us to heaven and we're out of here, as Kyle preached several weeks back. We don't get a jumpsuit to go straight to heaven. 
We, we get armor to live this life in battle for the Lord as one of his soldiers to display what saved sinners actually look like. We hear it all over the place in Scripture. Christ told us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to let our light so shine that others may see our good works, and what are they supposed to do? Glorify our Father which is in heaven. Or, or, or to praise God for his saving work, another way of saying it. We see it in Philippians 2, that we are to live as lights in this crooked and perverse nation, or in this world, by not complaining or grumbling. Something very small. All of that is supposed to put God on display. God is a saving God, and he wants the world to know that by how our lives have changed. So here we go. Bottom line this morning is this. Believers, salvation doesn't just impact your future. It impacts your present. You know, we're all, we, we get saved and we think, oh, I can't wait to go to heaven. Now I get to go to heaven. Now I'm going to be let into heaven. Yes, but it says this grace that saves you, this grace should also train you. The grace that saves is the grace that trains and we see here both a negative and a positive aspect. Let's look here first at the negative aspect. Look at verse 12 again. For the grace of God, it has appeared, it's brought salvation for all people. But verse 12 says, this grace that saves trains us, here's the negative, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So part of what it is to be a Christian is that we put some of the old life away, and he summarizes it here as ungodliness. Basically, that you live your life as if God doesn't exist. You're a practical atheist, okay? Uh, you live an irreligious life, complete disregard uh, to who God is. And then it also says here, and we are to renounce worldly passions, the, those sinful impulses, the love of the world, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life that, that creep in. We are to reject those things or to renounce those things. But Christianity isn't just about what you don't do. I remember being raised with thinking it's a, it's a big list of don'ts. Christianity isn't just about putting something off. It's also about a life that's to be pursued, a life that's supposed to be lived. And he says here, we are to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Those three, self-controlled, upright, and godly, all of those kind of respond to three ways. Yourself, others, and God. Do you see it? We're to live self-controlled. Who is that all about? It's about me. How am I to live my life? In self-controlled, using righteous restraint, not to give in to all of my worldly passions. You might want to write this verse down. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man, who, uh, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That might not be familiar to you, but if you were living uh, back then in the ancient Near East, you would know that if you did not have walls around your city, that you were subject to whatever kind of clan, tribe, nation blew in. And the same applies to us today. Without walls around our heart, without guarding our heart, for out of it flows all the issues of life, Proverbs tells us. Without those walls around our heart, whatever weather system of evil kind of blows in, we can be subject to. And so the man here is supposed to be self-controlled in how he deals with himself. But then he's also supposed to be upright. just means just in how you treat other people. The last one here is in relation to God. He is supposed to be godly. Supposed to be godly. 
for a Christian, if you, if you are new here and you're not exactly sure what Christianity is all about, it isn't about a big list of do's and don'ts. Ultimately, even though that's in here, it's all connected to a relationship with God. Our lives are transformed because of grace. So it's not just about all that you do for God. It's about all that God has done for you. The grace of God has appeared, and this grace trains you. And so the grace that reigns in your life is also the grace that's going to train you to live godly and self-controlled and upright in this present age. But friends, that, that should also make us sit up straight. It should make us go, you know, can I really confess that I am a believer that I have been saved by grace if I'm not allowing the same grace to train me. We should really be thinking about, is it just about receiving this grace or does this grace also have an impact in my life? When someone is truly converted, you're going to see transformation. You're going to see fruit. The question is, how are we going to be motivated to show that? Where does this motivation come to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives? Where does the, the motivation come to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, especially when they're so enticing? The devil's lies are the best lies. How do we say no to those? Well, because I told you so doesn't really work anymore, does it? Remember being young, you ask your mom another question, why do I have to do that? And what did your mom and dad say? Because I told you so. You don't need to know why. If you need to know why, I'd tell you. You're on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know, so just go and what? Do it doesn't really work the older we get and fortunately in God's word we don't just have this go and do it we actually get told why we are to live this life in the present and Paul says the motivation comes from looking to the past as well as looking to the future the two appearings look with me here at verse 11 for the grace of God what has it done it's appeared that's that's past tense right that that's appeared in the past it's brought salvation for all people Now skip down with me to verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the what? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live between an already and a not yet. And we live in that tension of what was done in the past. God's grace has appeared, and yet God's glory is going to be revealed in the future. And we live in that tension. And what Paul is pointing throughout this whole passage is this. It's impossible as Christians to live in this present age without being gripped by the past and anchored in the future. So let's look and see what the past is all about. You won't really understand Christianity unless you begin with the past. And here's the good news. The story begins with grace. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What I love about this passage is that the idea of grace, it's personified as a person. The grace of God has appeared. All you have to do is ask yourself the question, how has God's grace appeared? How how have we seen God's grace appear? Most of us would immediately answer, well, in Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's answer too. Look at verse 14. Christ is who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The good news is that God's grace has appeared in the past in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, 
his resurrection. All of that is grace. And it, and it has appeared, meaning that, that God is the initiator of it. God is the one who has intervened. God is the one who is solving the human problem. You see, all of us have committed spiritual suicide. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have become disobedient against God. None of us can say, God, you have to be gracious to me. God, I deserve your grace. I demand your grace. No. God's grace has appeared. And it's appeared when he sent his only begotten son into the world that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So his grace appeared in his life, but it also appeared in his death. Look at the passage in verse 14. What did Christ do? How has this grace appeared? He gave himself for us. Who did he give? Himself. You see that self-sacrifice in that? Christ was willing to lay down his life, and who was he willing to lay down his life for? He gave himself for who? For us. For, for all people, it says in verse 11, right? He, he gave himself for us. It means that he died in our place. He was our representative. He was our substitute. Here, Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. He gave himself as a ransom for many. Galatians 1, 3 through 5 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You got the past and the future and the present all in that passage, don't you? Listen to 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And who is this man? Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. We hear that God died in our place. He gave himself for us. He ransomed us. We actually get that idea of redeeming here later. Who gave himself, what did he do? Who gave himself for us to what? Redeem. Where does the idea of redeem come from? If you were to redeem something, you have a coupon, and what do you go to do at the store? You turn your coupon in, and you get what? Whatever it is in return. So you redeem it. And so God has redeemed us. We were in sin, and he bought us. He ransomed us. He purchased us out of the marketplace of sin. Why? It says here, from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He bought us for a relationship. He bought us to purify us, to take us from these idols that we were serving and to make himself our God and that we would be his people and that we'd have a relationship with him. Turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, I don't have the page number for you. But Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, you can just hear all of the themes that Paul was getting at here about what Christ has done in the past. Anybody using a pew Bible that can shut out the page? Say that again. 152 in the pew Bible. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. 
We like the legacy of the pages flapping here that we've been trained to do. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord sets his love on you and shows you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. What happened physically to the Israelites there? Christ is the true Israel. He is the true Son of God, and he is doing all of that for his own people, the church, to be zealous for, his, for good works and people for his own possessions. That's what God's done in the past. And what he's done in the past should impact our present. If you are here as a Christian this morning, you just need to be reminded that you are not your own. God has bought us. He has removed the control from our lives, and he has bought the title to our lives. And so now he is the one who tells us how to live our lives in this present age because of what he has done in the past. It is because he bought us. It is because he redeemed us. It is because we are a people for his own possessions that now he tells us in the present, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. And we do that out of gratitude, right? Gratitude says, for the love of Christ compels us that we should live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. But it's not just the past that should motivate us. That's essential. It has to be anchored in the past, but we also need the future, the second appearing of Christ. We don't live how we're supposed to live as Christians just because of the history of the past, but also because of the hope of the future. One author put it like this, and I love this. You're going to have to help me with east and west. I didn't think about that this morning, but if that's, that, that's north, right? Are we, are we all going to north 106? So east would be that way, west would be that way. Are we all in agreement? See if I can get my hand motions right. But one author said this. I love it as, a, as an illustration. We live between the two appearances, the appearance of grace, the appearance of glory, and it's like we enter the school of grace, and in the schoolroom, there are two windows. There is a window on the west, and that window looks back to Mount Calvary, and the light comes in through that window. But we also have a window on our east with the sun rising, which gives us hope of a brighter day, and that is the glorious appearing of Christ. And so the schoolroom of grace that we are trained in, we are trained to live this life, the grace of God has appeared, training us to live this life, it is well lit, both from the mountain of Calvary, but also from the eastern window where the light one day will dawn and his glory will be revealed, and we live in light of that. John Stott said it this way, looking back to Calvary to see what Christ has done and looking forward to his return should be an essential part of our daily discipline. We should say to ourselves, Christ died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Martin Luther said, I believe that Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming back tomorrow. Is that a pretty good way to live your life? Christ died yesterday. He rose again today, and he's coming back tomorrow. We should even ask ourselves, what would have to change in our life if he was coming back tomorrow? 
the prayer would be nothing. Because we're waiting. So, so, so what is this idea about waiting, this, this blessed hope? Look with me here at how awesome this passage is. Verse 13. We saw that Christ was called grace in verse 11, but now Christ is actually called glory in verse 13, and then later on in chapter 3, verses 4, he's actually called kindness. So Christ is called grace, he's called glory, and he's called kindness later. But it says we are to be waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For those of you that are here that don't believe Jesus Christ is God, this is one of the best passages in all of God's word to show you that the great God and Savior Jesus Christ is actually referring to one person. Never in the Bible is God the Father ever associated with the second coming of Christ. And grammatically, there is one definite article, the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and it links them both. This is a great passage for the deity of Christ. But Christ is appearing, and his appearing in glory. Colossians 1.27 says this, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. What is Christ in you? The hope of glory. Christ is glory. He is returning. That's why Paul says, Far better to depart and be with Christ that's why Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, and what to die is what? Is gain, because he actually had a hope. That's why Romans 8, Paul says, all of creation groans, listen to this, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. 1 John 3, 2 says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All believers long for and bask in the hope that one day the presence of sin and the power of sin will be canceled in our lives. And it happens when Christ appears in glory. But we as Americans have a hard time knowing how to practically apply what does it mean to wait. Waiting for this blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. What does that mean for me? Doesn't that just mean standing around? Waiting? Does the English word waiting really mean standing around? If you go to a restaurant this afternoon, what do you call the people that serve you? Waiters and? Are they standing around? Are they standing around? Okay, a couple of waitresses might be in here. Sometimes, okay. Um, and we have seen them. They, you know, they kind of check their phone and update their social media, you know, in between, you know, getting you water and so forth. But, but most of the time, ladies in waiting, servants in waiting, are they really just sitting around doing nothing, twiddling their thumbs? No. They're looking after you. They are there to serve you. They are serving. And one of the things that waiting on the Lord means is even when you don't feel like it, you still do your duty. One of the things waiting on the Lord means is even when you don't feel like it, you still do your duty. Jesus told a story in Luke 12, and it's a parable. You can go back and read it this afternoon. Great passage to read. In which the master leaves and their servants that are there, and he goes off to a far country, and he tells them, I will return. And there are certain servants who believe that their master will come back, who hope that their master will come back, 
who are confident in the master's word to return. And what are they doing? They are found working and laboring and faithful when he returns. But there are other servants who don't believe the master is ever going to come back. And what do they find them doing? Being disobedient. Living as if this life is all that there is. And so we find that those that are truly waiting, those that are truly hoping, are those that are truly obedient in the Christian life. And so the question is, how can we position ourselves to have this kind of confidence that Christ is going to return? How can we live our lives in a way that we actually see it as clearly and as confidently as Paul does that Christ is coming back? It's hard. When we're waiting for someone to return and you're looking out there, you know, it's easier to see further when you're up higher. Is that true? You can see further when you're up in a tower. My wife and I, we love to walk Marginal Way. We were there a couple weeks ago with my family for vacation. And as we're walking along Marginal Way, we could see some of the ocean. And it was just so blue and so clear. And Laura says, Josh, do you think that the beach that your parents go to, because we were with them, uh, in Ocean City, Maryland, is as clear as it is up here on the coast of Maine? I said, you know, I, I don't know. Always a safe answer. <laughs> okay, uh, I don't know. But I know this, that when we're at Ocean City, Maryland, it is just typical kind of the southern beach, sand for miles. Okay, I mean, you know, it's not the coast of Maine. There's no elevation. You are just on the beach. And so you have an eye-level view of the water. And so it looks darker. It, it looks murkier. The sand is always kind of getting churned up. And you don't get that, that aerial view as you're walking along marginal way, and you can look down and say, oh, look at the, the different colors. So I, said, I don't know. But I know from an aerial view, I get a better perspective of things. And Paul says, basically, in our life, that if you want to live faithfully, waiting for the glorious appearing of Christ, you've got to get a higher view. You've you got to live above your circumstances to be able to see perspective. And you live your life with a bigger perspective, not by watching the news, not by listening to talk radio, but by reading your Bible. You want to be able to figure out all that is going on in your life. Because you know what? It is so hard to read your Bible, I know that I struggle, and I'm sure that you do, when God seems absent. When you've been waiting on him, and you've been offering these prayers, and you've been asking, and you've been pleading, and yet it seems that evil continues to increase in our nation. When we see that disappointments continue to kind of just increase in our life, disappointments abound, difficulties seem to come and stay. You know what the temptation is? Temptation is that we stop doing the things that we usually do. We stop coming to worship. We stop private prayer. We stop reading our Bible. We stop going to small group. You stop serving people and doing things for people. You know why? Because you're filled with self-pity. You feel bad that you aren't getting anything out of it. And you stopped waiting for that blessed hope. And you've turned the blessed hope into a secular hope, which is this life is all there is. And because this isn't working out for me, my circumstances, I can't see them. Uh, I can't see beyond them. But right now, my circumstances are so bad, this isn't working. I go to church all the time, and I used to pray all the time. I used to pray all the time. But you know what? My life is still Therefore, we stop waiting. We stop hoping our hope vanishes 
And that's the problem with most of us in this present age. Most of us as American Christians, we live our life as if we are going to wake up in our bed or you know, wake up tomorrow morning in the same bed. We, most of us, believe that tomorrow will be just like today. Nothing's going to change. And if we live as if this life is all there is, that is going to have some profound implications in how we live our life. It even creeps into the church. You see that a church begins to not preach about the life that is to come and how to prepare for it, but the church begins to preach and to teach all about how to have your best life now. You know, it's about your marriage right now, and it's about raising kids right now, and it's about your finances right now. And we do everything to help people cope with right now that we begin to neglect, forget, or even maybe one day deny that the next is coming. But beloved, the next is coming. And the church's main job is to prepare us for the life that is to come. That propels us in mission to go and tell people that Christ has appeared in grace and he will appear in glory. And would you choose Christ today before it is too late? Don't harden your hearts while it is called today. The Bible, friends, is future-oriented. Who in here has read Pilgrim's Progress? Every single person in Pilgrim's Progress is going towards where? The celestial city. Everyone's on a journey towards heaven. Now, some get off that journey, but everyone's moving forward. The Bible is future-oriented. The Bible is a big book of promises. And we have to remind ourselves that we are in a vast company of those that have waited. Abraham waited for his promised son, right? Israel waited for 420 years to be delivered from Egypt, then 40 more to be able to go into the promised land. God's people, Israel, waited generation after generation for the Messiah. And the church now waits for Christ's return. We will either respond today to this message by believing God's promises and changing our lives around that promise to follow after it, or we'll yawn and fall asleep and just kind of just live as if today is all that there is and this life is all that there is and we'll just keep going on doing our everyday thing. But if you are gripped by that future hope, that's anchored in the past of what Christ has done, then it will change your 2 o'clock on Tuesday. It'll change your 3 o'clock on Wednesday. It'll make you want to have the discipleship relationships of Titus 2, 1 through 10. Because you're you're living, waiting for that blessed hope. You'll be like Moses, who did not consider the present perks of being in Pharaoh's household worthy to be compared. He calculated it. He did math, okay? And he said, for the future city, for the future kingdom, for being a part of God's people. The future motivated Moses to leave Pharaoh's house. We need to be gripped by that reality. Remember that waiting isn't just about what you're hoping for at the end of the wait, but also what you'll become while you wait. There is no certainty that you will live this life, as Paul lays out for us here, if there isn't a certain hope. So I want to end with an illustration, and then we'll go to the communion table. We need to picture our lives like a string. And if all I did was pick up one end of it, and it is anchored in the past, how am I going to live my life? It's kind of limp, unpurposeful, wiggly. But if my life is anchored in the past of what Christ has done for me, 
and it's also gripped by the future of Christ returning. How does my life now look? Straight, taunt, purposeful, self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. If all you have is a future that isn't based upon Christ's death and his resurrection, will you be disappointed when you get to those gates and say, why should I let you in? Absolutely. You need the past and the future to live in the present. As we come to the communion table, we proclaim the Lord's death. But we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You think that we're kind of hitting on a big theme in Scripture? The past, the future, it determines how we live in the present. Men, if you want to come forward, we'll take the Lord's table together.